Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast exploring the ever-growing intersection of biology and technology. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. On today's episode, we are making the full arc from the theoretical and borderline philosophical to the applied. So let's start with the theoretical. The theory of embodied intelligence posits that the body or the physical form plays an active and significant role in shaping an agent's mind and cognitive capacities. So for example, human intelligence is not just the function of our brain, but a combination of our brain, our body, and the environment in which we exist. But when it comes to designing artificial intelligence, a physical form and an environment are not typically part of the equation. It's a disembodied cognition. My guests today, Li Feifei and Surya Ganguly of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI, set out to develop what they call an evolutionary playground to explore the development of embodied intelligence and its connection with the environment and with learning using in silico experiments. They discuss with A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey and I how they created a suite of virtual environments in which agents evolve through a process that mimics some aspects of Darwinian evolution. These agents, called the unimal or universal animal, start off as a central node and with each generation can add or subtract limbs and change various aspects of their physical form, like how flexible their joints are. Just like in real evolution, different forms arose based on the peculiarities of the environment. But what's really exciting is what Feifei, Surya, and colleagues discovered about the intelligence encoded in some of these forms, such as an increased ability to learn a novel task. Which brings us to the applied section of our discussion. These results provide new insights into how we think about designing robots capable of performing unique tasks and for understanding the possible limitations of disembodied AI models like GTP3. These results are described in a preprint posted on Archive, and I highly recommend watching some of the videos of these evolved unimals, which we will link to in the show notes. Our conversation begins with Feifei and Surya describing how they got interested in this topic. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so the motivation of writing this paper really started from trying to build AI and this realization that 
all of nature's intelligent, especially high intelligence animals, are fully embodied. And you look at AI research; it's very abstract software. But my research is also in computer vision, and it brings me to look at how vision emerges in the evolutionary sense. And vision was a critical sensory capability or functionality that enabled embodied animals to move. And once they move, they start to interact with the environment, start to interact with other animals, and they become food of other animals, or they want to eat other animals. And that interplay between the onset of sensory. As well as the environment that impacts the behavior, really was kind of the onset of intelligence development in nature, and that was really what brought me to question: How does a agent's body and its capability to interact with its environment, plus some sensory ability, enable intelligence and the development of intelligence? Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by putting everything together, right? Sensation, action, cognition in an action perception loop. So, if you go on a little bit of the history of robot design, back in the '80s, roboticists used to think about modules, right? You'd have a sensing module that will tell you what's out there. You have a planning module that'll plan a trajectory. Then they will feed that desired trajectory into a motor control system that will execute the trajectory. But in reality, it's much more complicated. You have all these feedback loops, and you can employ feedback control laws. So, for example, You have these nested feedback loops where you get the sensory input right now, and you can make a really quick but dumb decision as to what's the next action to spit out next, independent of your overall plan. And these are like these reflexes. You know, cockroaches have these kinds of reflexes, and they're even faster than any possible neural signal can travel. And it's because the exoskeleton of the cockroach has embodied intelligence to stabilize it. Then you have longer, slower feedback loops that are smarter that can correct for perturbations. In a goal-directed manner, it's so different from the modular way that traditional roboticists used to think.、Mm-hmm. So that's what I think of as embodied intelligence. These nested feedback control loops exploit the passive dynamics of the physical world, and they add to it to achieve goals. That's very intriguing, and almost like connects evolutionary development with sort of different levels of pre-training. That you have an organism that bakes something in, and then you build on top of that genetic pre-training into the next level. So I think this idea of these levels of control is really interesting. How is that manifested in an organism shape? How do you go from like levels of control to changing the way that the animal's body actually evolves and changes over time? Well, the interaction, the actuation of interacting with the environment requires the physical movements, right? Like、uh, Surya was saying, from stability to Locomotion to all kinds of manipulation, and that requires the kind of control loop feedback at almost every interval of time. You know, the very local, immediate, like balancing to stand stably, to longer term planning to execute some kind of. Goal like I want to move a box from point A to point B. These all involves. Your limbs, the shape of the body, and the physics of the world—from gravity to the terrain—with the control and planning. 
Right. If you're a snake with no limbs, you're going to approach a problem and solve a problem differently as if you're a centipede, you know, with hundreds of limbs. Also, it's not just that you solve the problem differently, but how that affects the neuronal development, the development of cognition. What can evolution teach us about artificial intelligence or cognition and vice versa? What can cognition tell us about evolution? And I was thinking about the former. I wasn't thinking about the latter, that we actually may learn evolution and that evolution is a sort of type of training in its own right. Yeah, it's a training and it's also a slow training because the iteration is the animal's lifetime, whereas a software's training can be a lot more faster. Yet, by some miracle that we don't fully understand that relatively slow training can iterate into such high intelligence that yeah, I think, though, there's a couple of things. One, massively parallel, right? Two, genetic algorithms. Three, many billion years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the billions of years makes a big difference. <laughs> but your search space is still huge. It mm-hmm. is, yeah. One of the bigger limitations in the previous work is smallness of the simulated world, that the environment parameters are relatively small, and a lot have to do with the limitation of computation and algorithms. And when you're that small, it's hard to really decipher the results. If you're too contrived, that result doesn't really statistically scale to something that is significant. And we feel one of the bigger steps we've taken are the, the much larger, more complex environment, enabling bigger search space and all that. Yeah, I agree. And and I think one of the things that we did that was kind of going beyond prior work is that we combined two different processes, right? Evolution over morphologies, and then learning a controller from scratch over a lifetime. And both are quite complicated. We had a very expressive search space where we could get crazy animals like quadrupeds, octopeds, bipeds, with and without claws to help them move stuff around. But then also, we didn't mimic Lamarckian inheritance, right? Where like, the child knows everything that the parent learned in their lifetime from birth. We implemented tabula rasa learning where the child is a blank slate. Its controller knows nothing about the parent's controller and it has to learn from experience. And we were kind of doing many more complicated tasks as well, like not just walking in a flat terrain, but walking around in more variable terrain, pushing stuff around with obstacles and hills and stuff like that. So we could like simultaneously look at three different things, the complexity of the shape, the complexity of the environment, and the complexity of learning itself. And so that allowed us to look at a lot more scientific questions than, you know, previous work could have looked at. What were some of the big unknowns? When you were reading about this field and you're thinking about how you can address the questions, what were the big open questions that you thought we could apply ourselves to? I think the initial thing was, could we even get it to work? Exactly, (laughs) that's what I was going to say. We didn't even know it would work. That was the first thing, exactly. Nobody had scaled up to that level of complexity along three simultaneous axes, environmental complexity, controller complexity, and morphological complexity. So at first, like, can we even just get it to work? We weren't sure, right? And, you know, Agrim, the student who did all this work, is a brilliant student. I don't know about you, Feifei. I myself was initially a bit hesitant you know, are we going to like hurt the students somehow? It's maybe too ambitious for a project, but he was ready to go and I wasn't going to stand in his way. I remember when we invited you into this project, Syria, you definitely 
express healthy skepticism. <laughs> yeah, but I was definitely open to the results that were coming through. And I thought it's an intriguing direction. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once we got it to work, then we're like, oh, crap, we got to learn about evolutionary dynamics. We have an in silico playground to ask scientific questions now, right? And so we were all reading up on evolution, actually. Yeah. We came to this project through the AI aspiration. As I said, uh, we were inspired by evolution, but we just wanted to make an agent or to grow an agent that can do this through evolution. Let's start by digging into your paper and talking about this in silico playground that you developed, which I think is a fantastic way to describe it. To develop this, would you say that there was like a technical advance or was the challenge was applying like existing technologies to like a new space, a new field? Yeah, it was sort of putting a lot of pieces together and getting them to work. There's a huge design space. So for example, one of our goals was to have like a lot of diversity of morphological forms, right? You know, Darwin ended his origin of the species with this phrase, life on this earth gave rise to endless forms most beautiful. And we wanted to recreate that. And so a typical problem with evolutionary dynamics is you get this winner-take-all effect. The one morphology that does the best, it, it outcompetes all the others and it dominates the population. So one of the design decisions we made was to weaken the selection effect. So we did this sort of tournament-based evolution rather than generation-based evolution. So in, in generation-based evolution, everyone's competing to survive to make it to the next generation. In tournament-based evolution, we pick a small number of agents to compete in a tournament, the best one survives. So then if you're not selected for a tournament and you're not that good, you can still survive by just evading selection for, for some time. Of course, you can't evade selection for too long because eventually you'll age out and leave the population. So that weakened the selective pressure and allowed like a lot of diversity. So I think it's like good engineering, right? There's a lot of design choices and it's hard to pinpoint any one source of our success. I spent a lot of time watching the videos associated with this paper. I thought they were all so fascinating and really like hypnotic to watch. But if someone hadn't seen those videos, how would you describe what the space looks like? And then I love this term, the unimal, this universal animal, this agent that you create to interact in the space and to evolve. We have to give Agrim the credit for naming unimal. The environment is a combination of the shape of the terrain, flat, rough, and all that, as well as some of the manipulation tasks, like moving a box from a place to another, it is compared to real world, still very contrived, but uh, compared to the previous work, it's already an order of magnitude or two more complex. And of course, my personal dream is to take this into a much more realistic ecological environment. And the Unimo itself, it's an organism that's pieced by parameterized sticks, kind of, yellow sticks, and they are enforced to be symmetric. And they evolve different number of limbs and the joint movements in order to survive and reproduce in this environment. I cannot help myself to try to imagine I'm seeing a spider mm -hmm. versus a dog-like animal. They are not meant for that, but because of gravity, because of the physics, you get that sense that they're nature-like animals. Yeah, it's kind of the evolutionary process. Like It starts by adding limbs and then adding limbs upon limbs and uh, keeping the whole thing bilaterally symmetric so the controller doesn't have to solve the left-right stability problem. So 
bilateral symmetry is a property of all, all animal body plans going back 500 million years. So we kind of bake that in, but that's the only constraint. There are like 10 to the 18th possible morphologies in our design space. Also, the limbs can rotate along multiple axes or the motor actuation can be strong or weak. So these are all like a large number of possible variables. I think a key sense of realism is that our sensors are low level, what's called egocentric sensors. Like it doesn't get like a GPS signal that says you're at X, Y coordinate in your global environment, right? It just gets, you know, a few feet ahead. It has tunnel vision and it can't see very far. So it's just like a human. It has very local information about its vicinity. It has to turn that low-level sensory information into low-level torques or motor outputs. That's it. And it does that using a neural network with about 250,000 parameters that are all learned from scratch, right? So the control problem is also pretty complicated. That was actually really important to us. The sensory signal come from an egocentric, realistic, and limited sensing because that is a key realism of evolution, right? There is... No animal that gets an oracle input, but to us, if we want to hope for a more evolutionarily inspired way of doing this, and we believed strongly that sensing has to be as realistic as possible. Yeah, and it seems like the real life constraints are partially what drives the cognition. Yes. If it was too sort of given just a priori, you wouldn't have to learn much. The fact that it doesn't have this God view, that it has to deal with this complex environment, that it has these different tasks, you know, how does that influence how these unimals evolve and change shape and gain intelligence, embodied intelligence? Well, for example, height, right? So if I don't need to figure out sensing myself, I don't really have much of a constraint in terms of how tall or short I should be navigating the terrain. But because I'm subject to my own height's ability to see, especially a terrain that's non-flat, that limited realistic constraint impacts the way my body morphs and evolves. Yeah. One of the other things that we did to like evaluate, like how do you evaluate how good a morphology is just in and of itself, completely independent of its controller that's learning to control it through lifetime experience. Well, what we did was Agrim created a, a set of a suite of sort of eight test tasks, right? And involved different types of skills like agility, manipulation, and so forth. So it's like an agent gladiator arena. So, so to speak. And then we just take a morphology and we give it a lobotomy of of its brain. What I mean by that, it has random weights for its initial neural network. And it just has to learn for each task from scratch. And what we found is different morphologies were just better at learning than others. So then it's just a property of the morphology itself, the ability to learn. And how do you get these better morphologies through evolution? Well, if the evolutionary environment in which they evolved is more complicated, that tends to generate these better morphologies. We call them more intelligent morphologies or basically embodied intelligence, right? Morphological intelligence. It's defined by how well the morphology does in this new gladiator arena that's completely different from the evolutionary environment it evolved. One of the interesting things about evolution is that there's a lot of meta-evolution that happens, that things evolve to be evolvable, that there's tons of biochemical examples like chaperonins. So uh, did you see any evidence of that, that things sort of developed in ways that would further enhance their development? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I mean, there's the evolution of robustness, the evolution of modularity, and the evolution of evolvability, right? Those all sort of go hand in hand. They do, because modular makes helps evolvability amongst other things. I mean, 
we looked into what is it about the morphology that makes it intelligent. And the two things that we came up with was passive stability, right? The morphologies that are more intelligent, which are by definitions the one that do well in these gladiator tasks, they tend to be more passively stable. They can stand upright without control for some time. Mm -hmm. And then they're also energy efficient, right? So we measured like the torque usage per unit motion. And the ones that were more intelligent used less torque per unit motion. So what we think is the more intelligent morphologies have shapes that enable them to exploit the passive dynamics of the environment. Mm. And then they don't need to learn that much control because the passive they're exploiting the passive dynamics of the environment well. And that fits in with evolutionary ideas around fitness for your environment. You're like very much adapting exactly. to the conditions that you're in and for the niche that you can fill. Right, exactly. So one of the really intriguing insights from your work has to do with how learning influences evolution and particularly supports this hypothesis called the Baldwin effect. So what is the Baldwin effect and what did your simulations suggest about it? The Baldwin effect is conjectured through Darwinian evolution and it's the organism's ability to learn new behaviors that will affect its reproductive success and will therefore have an effect on the genotype of the species through natural selection. The Baldwin effect, if I understand it right, is almost like a selection for the ability to learn. It's seeing like the time that it takes to learn a task decreasing over generations. And I like the example that you gave in your paper of if an animal has to learn to walk, you could expect to see that that time to learn to walk decrease if that animal that doesn't learn to walk gets picked off by predators faster. So it's not a direct selection on learning, but it does have an impact on learning. Yeah, so usually like the simple way to think about it is like any behavior for which, which there's some implicit cost if you don't learn it early in a lifetime. If evolution can act in such a way as to modify the genotype to reduce learning time, then evolution will, Right. Because evolution always finds a way, right? We learned that from Jurassic Park. So uh, so, um, if evolution can speed up learning and there's a cost, if you don't speed up learning, evolution will speed up learning. So much so that like a few generations back, something that took your ancestors a lot of time to learn might even be present as instincts at birth. And so then it smacks of Lamarckian inheritance, right? It's like something your ancestors learned in your lifetime is now somehow in your genotype at birth. But it's definitely not Lamarckian. It's completely Darwinian. And so that's why the Baldwin effect attracted so much attention in evolutionary biology, because it resurrected something that looked like Lamarckian on the surface that had been rejected for so long. It it resurrected it, but within Darwinian clothing. Then evolution has figured out certain things are so expensive and costly if you don't learn that. Mm -hmm. It's actually cheaper to encode it into the genotype not because we pass down the phenotype, but to just encode it in so that the costliness is reduced. And one of the encoding is actually in the body shape itself. You know, if you have better legs to walk and that walking is so important, then Baldwin effect selects the organism that has evolved maybe at the beginning by accident, the better legs because the learning is just faster. And then through a few generations, you almost don't have to do any 
learning at birth because the leg is just right. This Baldwin effect is so intriguing. And people have been doing kind of evolutionary simulations to try to like reproduce it in silico, right? And kind of the big fish to fry was, can something you learn neurally be transmitted to the next generation, like the ability to learn? And so to our knowledge, we're the first simulation to sort of combine evolution over morphology and learning within a lifetime and show that what you learn within a lifetime can be sped up just by changing your morphology, which was kind of the original kind of uh, biologist conjecture, like maybe animal forms were optimized to speed learning. So we're not aware of any other study that's done that. And it was kind of a big effect in our evolutionary simulations. You know, over 10 generations, the agents learned not only like two or three times better performance, but they halved their learning time. So they learned twice as fast just in 10 generations. Right. Of course, our generations aren't the same as like a, a you know a generation in, in, in real life because that's just mutating DNA sequences. But we're actually adding limbs in each generation. But still, it's, it was faster than we expected. And by the way, we weren't looking for it. We just saw that things were, they were learning faster. And then we're like, what's going on? And then we learned that there's this thing called the Baldwin effect. So That was a big surprise. <laughs> It's just such a different way of thinking about intelligence. You know, we're so centered on intelligence being this function of the human brain specifically, and, you know, usually the property only of neurons. And this is a way of thinking of intelligence and learning and the ability to learn as something that is physically embodied is just, you know, a different paradigm. I still think this is a means to an end for evolution because at the end of the day, I don't know what's the end point of evolution on Earth, but we as humans is one good current end point is that we want to have powerful brains to do such cognitively important and complex tasks that evolution find that transferring some of the more rudimental or fundamental functionality to morphology would actually speed up learning, saves room for the brain to learn more bigger and complex things and make survival better. So I still believe the bulk of really human-like learning is in the brain, but this evolution of body together with brain, it is kind of a really fun way for evolution to outsource some of the intelligent capability to a cheaper means, which is the body. We've talked about this incredible advance that you guys made in able to simulate and study the evolution and connection between intelligence and morphology and learnability and these surprising insights into the Baldwin effect. But I'd like to segue into kind of the bigger picture. So what kind of practical implications does research like this have? I think that was the last thing Syria and I wondered about. (laughs) (laughs) we weren't weren't super practical in this project we were kind of more blue sky in this project right but for specific tasks like in specific domains right the human morphology may not be the best morphology to get things done and we as humans don't really have any intuition for how to design morphologies like we don't know how to design a morphology that's good for some strange task in some strange domain i don't know maybe crawling through a nuclear reactor to extract waste or something like that so Maybe the only way forward is evolution for the design of of robots that work for us in niche domains that are so different from the domains in which we evolved. There is actually a field of especially soft robotics that is 
trying to get to what Syria just said that you adapt the shape for tasks, but it's a lot of human design. It's the brilliance of researchers and engineers designing that. And one of the things we learned in the past few years in deep learning is definitely this concept of meta-learning or neural architecture search, right? You're learning not only the parameters of an architecture of a piece of software, you're learning the architecture itself. Mm. Um, so in a way, the implication of this work is the physical architecture of the embodied organism that might have real application like uh, disaster relief or maybe guiding your way into a human body, you know, those uh, nanorobots. One could believe human intelligence can design that, but our research at least can point to a direction that this physical architecture of the embodiedness can be principally optimized learning. Within learning, there's all these techniques of supervised learning, you know, semi-supervised learning, self-supervised learning. Could you imagine an evolutionary supervised learning where this is a sort of another scheme where basically can this sort of constrain the architecture enough to realistic things that you let it go play the games for a while driven by evolution and then you give it a real task to learn. And presumably the creatures you've created, the more advanced ones probably could learn a task faster than the simple ones. In a sense, it is a sort of another variant because the more we can let these things sort of evolve on their own with us having to sort of teach them every single thing, uh, the more sophisticated perhaps AI can get. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is actually, Vijay, one of my dreams is connecting this research to some other work in our lab where we are simulating very realistic ecological environments that humans live in and see what is an optimal robot that can perform a lot of tasks. And then you can imagine the same thing, right? Drop this evolvable robot on the Mars. Yeah. And NASA doesn't have to design the perseverance in the fixed shape. It can just drop a morphable perseverance and see how it navigates the terrain best. <laughs> Yeah, so if you think about like what does astronomy, economics, and evolution have in common, it's very hard to do causal manipulation experiments in those fields. You can only do observational studies for the most part, especially in astronomy. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, in evolution, if we can create a semi-realistic in silico playground, we can really explore and then we can try different things. Like there's this common theme out there that evolutionary arms races between multiple species really accelerate evolution. And we just had the evolution of one species, right? But can we set up in, in silico experiments where we set up competitive games and gender evolutionary arms races through the co-evolution of multiple species? And then you have like all, all these species competing against each other. And, and can you accelerate the outcome? How does the speed of evolution scale with the degree of competitiveness? There's so many questions that you could ask in this setting, scientific questions that you can't ask in any other setting about evolution at the moment. At the beginning, we talked about how traditionally AI has focused on this development of disembodied cognition, whereas here you're looking at embodied cognition. So can you see these two mindsets combining? And what do you think the outcome of something like that could be? So I do see that in AI, there is a huge interest in looking at embodied agents because we realized much of intelligent agent learning is probably enabled by the interactions with the world and the interactions cannot be too abstract. And that is personally, especially coming from the world of computer vision and now robotics, I believe deeply 
that that uh, that kind of ecological environmental forces is part of the so-called evolutionary forces for the evolution of intelligence. So I do see that happening. Yeah. And I think like sort of embodied intelligence and abstract intelligence can powerfully bootstrap off of each other, right? Like these language models like GPT-3, which are completely disembodied, right? To what extent can they understand the world from just raw text without understanding the causal effect that text can have on physical objects in the world, right? And and so forth. So I, I think the field is going to have to come to terms with the interaction of multiple levels of reasoning from abstract to physical to motor control to embodied, just as the brain does, right? You can't cleanly separate our language area from our world modeling area, from our spatial reasoning area. Like they're all tightly coupled and interconnected. Well, with that, Feifei, Surya, Vijay, thank you for joining me on Journal Club today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Vijay and Surya. Thank you. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help of the A16Z bio team, Tommy Heron and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And last but not least, if you are enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.